0: Hello, hello, bonjour, what's up, what's good, ni hao, welcome to the Any Given Runway Show. I'm your host, Randall Carlton Green. Any Given Runway celebrates the exploration of new cultures by highlighting some of the most interesting, daring, adventurous people in the world. Everyone has a story, each person a scholar. Happy Boxing Day, happy Boxing Day. And we're going to give you some speed today as our 2020 recap compilation episode to feature two of our drivers and the stories that they have from being behind the wheel. We'll start it off with South African racer Dion von Moltke and on the second half we'll feature stunt and drift driver from the UK, Michelle Westby. Dion von Moltke competed in several different racing circuits and finished with five wins, one in the Rolex sports car series and four in the American Le Mans series. Uh, he was a fantastic interview and, and he chats about his time racing but also how he wants to help young drivers in the future. Now, early in your career, you raced uh, Porsches. I, when I emailed you, uh, that's one of the coolest sentences I've ever written in my life. <laughs> that You raced Porsches. So, yeah. and these these aren't NASCAR. These are how would you describe the Porsches? And what do you like best about those as well?
1: Yeah. So, I would describe my form of racing as endurance sports car racing. Um. Mm-hmm. So the something like the Le Mans 24 hours is something exactly. that's more familiar. Um. I never got to race at Le Mans myself. Still dream of it. But I've done the Daytona 24 hours, Sebring 12 hours. Um. Yeah, the Porsches were tricky. Uh, Each car has its own characteristic. And the Porsches, you kind of have to to manhandle a little bit as a driver. You really got to throw them around. Uh, Where other cars, you have to be super smooth with your inputs and and be very responsive. The Porsches, you can throw around more. You know, they are some of the most uh, fond memories of my career. And I'll try to explain this uh, clearly, but Mm -hmm. in sports car racing, You sometimes have classes where you've got different manufacturers racing against one another. Now, the politics of that, the series wants to try and make all of these cars even. But when you get a lot of smart engineers together and a lot of egotistical drivers, there's this weird uh, politic battle where you're sometimes having to drive slower so your car doesn't look too fast so that you can show your true speed at the right time. So there's this weird angle to it. When I was racing Porsches, most of the time, it was a single manufacturer class. It was only the same type of car. So as a driver, you're flat out the whole time. Yeah. You're throwing yeah. down, and that was really fun.
0: Well, and you had a wonderful TED Talk where you talked about some of the physical demands, things I didn't realize about either. We always talk about you, you see the drivers on the SBs and stuff, and people at the bar wherever will be like, are these guys athletes? But yeah, they are, yeah. and you you go on to talk on the TED talk about some of the physical demands. What are some of the physical demands of a driver?
1: Yeah. So look, I think one of the difficult things about motorsports to understand is we can all go in our backyard and, and try to dunk a basketball and know that we're all going to fail pretty much, right? Yeah. What we all can hop in our cars and stop at a stoplight and drive and not and you and you think it's the same thing. It's almost like I related to as walking a hundred meters. Thinking that man, I'm like yeah, Usain okay. Bolt now, right? That that's yeah. kind of the violent difference. So the the atmosphere of a race car is a really violent atmosphere. It's over 150 degrees inside of it. You've got like your transmission right next to your leg. Mm-hmm. We've got rubber boots that I've seen melt to be, uh, gas pedals. You're under G forces. So. One of the reasons why pilots train so hard, when you think about the Air Force and and astronauts, now they're going to go a higher level of G for a longer, or sorry, shorter time period. But those G forces on their bodies, the same things you get in a race car. So a lot of times we're three, four, five, six Gs, and that means your body, your head is weighing you know three, four, five, six times their weight. So if you think about the strain on your neck, your 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 muscles in your arms, especially when a car doesn't have power steering. It's something like trying to lift you know, 20, 30-pound weights for an hour and a half to three hours in 150-degree temperature in an environment that you're always at the limit. You're always – the car is dancing between crashing and, and being at that perfect point. You can't yeah. just relax. It's kind of like a full sprint. So mentally, it's one of the most intense sports. I've, I'm a sports fan. i played everything going up. Yeah. Nothing quite challenges the mind like racing. Uh, and then from the body perspective, that heat is truly different than anything else. So it's it's a really different environment. I mean, I've seen teams at, to part of the news broadcast trying to show how hot it gets. I actually saw a team. I'm not exaggerating. Put a raw chicken breast in some tin foil, put it in the car. At the end of the race, it was fully cooked to the point that they mm. ate it.
0: <laughs> you sold it to me the second you said no power steering. I know many <laughs> of the listeners. Many listeners are probably uh, have never not experienced power steering, but I do remember at times growing up, maybe my family didn't add a car with it, you had to do the you know the, the pull yep. a little <laughs> bit over. So I I, I think that yeah. itself is a, is a physical challenge. It is. So in your races, a lot of times, or most of the time, they are road tracks instead of the traditional just oval tracks. Yeah. What right. do you enjoy most about the road tracks compared to the traditionals?
1: Yeah, you know, I've never, I've never really had the opportunity to race on ovals themselves. Like, those are super intense, right? Like, NASCAR, I, not the format that I know well. I know some drivers there, three to four wide for that long at those speeds. Wow. Like, hats yeah. off. I did not like growing up, but now I've like respect the hell out of it. Yeah, um, yeah. So we turn left and right. What I really <laughs> like about it, <laughs> uh, and you got brake points and throttle yeah. points, right? you know, some of the finesse behind it and the characteristics of every track. So like we, I've raced all across the world and there's, every track is completely different than one another. I think of, you know, Watkins Glen in New York, where you've got elevation change, you're going up, you're going down, you've got high speed corners. And then we've raced at Daytona where we use part of the banking, but then we come into the infield and it's completely flat. Then with that, how people can watch the race. So one of our kind of most popular races is called the Sebring 12 hour. One of our biggest races, there's 150,000 people in that infield and they're building like scaffolding with like Mm -hmm. couches to watch the race. And there's, you know, bonfires in the inside. It's just this really cool atmosphere. So when you kind of get this massive racetrack with different corners that you can go around to and different challenges, it it just becomes really fun.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of just growing up with the different video games, and you would pick the tracks, and you would yeah. it would kind of take you to a far-off land that you didn't know about. But you a lot of times you pick based on the tracks and angles and everything. Although you don't do the traditional ovals, you have raced at traditional tracks, Daytona, Indianapolis, some of these legendary places. Now, I know that the race is different, but what were some of your thoughts just being on those tracks?
1: It's cool. I mean, the first time you go through Indy, like, yeah, we're not using the traditional four-corner Indy course, right? We're driving it backwards even, mm-hmm. um, kind of the old Formula 1 circuit. You go over those bricks, you can't help but—I don't know—you just feel it, right? Like it's the—the one thing that really stood out to me is we're sitting in pit lane, and I looked at the track. I was like, "Man, this is really narrow." Like I couldn't imagine going three wide through here, and I definitely couldn't imagine going into turn one at 238 miles an hour. Like it it, just—it—it's hard to compute. So even you know, I've gone 200 miles an hour before. I've been on the banking at that speed. I know what it feels like. I have no clue how they do it at that speed for that long. Like. I bow down to them with so much respect. Yeah. That, it blows my mind, right? Um so Indy's really cool. It's a really cool racetrack. It's a cool town. People that people live for that race there. Yeah. Um so to be able to race there was truly special.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. Where are some of your favorite tracks that you have been on?
1: Ooh, that's a great question. Um my two favorite tracks in North America are gonna be Watkins Glen and Road Atlanta, mm-hmm. uh from a racetrack point of view. From a just the whole vibe. There's a place in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, okay. just south okay. of just south of Green Bay called Road America. And it's funny. I think the track itself is super overrated. It, people talk about how it's like one of the coolest tracks to drive on. It's cool. It's long, high speed. Yeah. But the history that's there is incredible. They used to have races in the downtown village. Now there's a proper built racetrack. But like you go downtown – there's bars there with stickers on it from like Mario Andretti and his mm. form of the One Days. And you just I don't know. It's just that and there's all, like the whole town's on a lake. You can't help but get excited when you're there.
0: Yeah. And I think we talked about that. Uh, you enjoyed Baltimore as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So one of the the coolest memories of my career, uh, was one of the top teams that hired me was a team called Flying Lizard Motorsport. Mm. And as with anything in racing, it's an expensive sport, so it's different ways to fund it. Um, In in endurance sports car racing, what happens a lot of times is the team owner is a driver himself. And because there are longer races, we share cars. So like you'll come in for fuel and tires, you'll hop in and out. So for this season, I was sharing the car with the team owner and he had been racing professionally for 10 years, had never won a race. Uh, So I helped him uh, we both won at Baltimore together, so it was his first per, uh, pro win. Baltimore's cool. We're racing downtown on the streets. We're in between the uh, Baltimore Orioles and the Raven stadiums, which is really cool. Um, yeah. The street circuits are fun. I got to say, Long Beach, being able to race there, that's a really cool vibe. On the water, you're you know just south of LA, right? And it's it's an awesome vibe. So street courses, a little bit different, different types of fans, uh, but it's a great way to bring the sport to the people.
0: Now, speaking of tracks that are on the water, Detroit, the Detroit Grand Prix, some great views of the water. You told me that you had a love-hate relationship (laughs) with the Detroit Grand Prix. So tell me about that.
1: Yeah, so it's funny. (laughs) I'll be honest. Like I didn't know much about Detroit other than what you see on the news. It's become one of my favorite places to go after as my professional career started to go to da- uh, wind down, I started to get more into coaching with enth- enthusiast racers. And like, we all look forward to going to Detroit because like the bar, the restaurant scene is awesome. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. And I gotta say like going somewhere where like, the taxi drivers are like, thank you for coming. Like we yeah. love that you're here. That's really cool.
0: And so- tell me that you weren't Impressed by the fact there's an MGM casino in the middle of the city. Like I had no clue there's was an MGM casino right in the middle of downtown.
1: <laughs> it's nuts. It's nuts. Yeah. So I gotta say, I gotta give a shout out because it's yeah. it's not what I was expecting at all. Like we genuinely like going there. Um, the track itself, you know, I had some low moments there. I've had some high moments. I think back to kind of uh, a moment my last full season racing was 2015. At that point, we were leading the championship, we were really the car to beat. And it was a a wet and dry weekend and it rained right before, sorry, in the middle of the final practice. And the whole team was like, hey, the race is going to be dry. Let's not go out. Of course, the team owner was like, no, I want to go out. (laughs) I made a mistake and I crashed. And it was like three hours, not even two hours before qualifying. And and so, you know, I think like Detroit walls are right there. It's a track where if you make one mistake, you're into a concrete wall, which does a lot of damage. So the team we don't have backup cars or anything like that. We got the car back and the team probably had an hour and a half before qualifying and they thrashed. They got that thing out there to where as qualifying was going green, I was getting in the car, went out, it's 15 minutes and we we're able to throw it on pole position after that crash, which is a really cool redemption uh, for me. And thanks to the team on that. And then we finished, I think we finished second or third that race weekend. We should have really won it. Kind of, uh annoys me that I haven't won Detroit yet. Um, so I've had some lows there. I've had a couple crashes, but that was a, a cool weekend that I always look back to. And anytime I go back and visit that team, we always joke about it. They're always showing videos of it. Um, yeah. So it's a cool moment.
0: When it comes to crashes, they happen. And, but yep. in your TED Talk, you mentioned that after one crash, you actually went back and apologized to all the team members. And I thought that was really poignant. And I think that anytime anyone takes ownership and says, "You know, my bad, it's such a growing experience. I know it was an awkward situation, but um, did, what did you learn from that?
1: So the cool thing about that story that I think happened after the TED Talk is the team that I apologized to then hired me as a driver. In fact, the okay. team I was just talking about uh, with the crash of Detroit was the team that hired me. So it was uh, 2010, I think it was, at Daytona. It was you know probably hour 19. Again, it was wet, dry. I'd come in for new tires. And one thing that's really important to know about race tires or race slicks is the tire itself has no grooves in it. It's completely slick. And yeah. when the tire is not hot, it has no grip. It's yeah. like, it's hard to explain that to someone that doesn't like have a concept of grip, but like literally to the point where you turn and you could be going 10 miles an hour and the car will just go straight. Yeah. So it was cold, slightly wet. I came out of the pits and I didn't take enough of that, uh, respect or context in. I mm-hmm. turned, the car didn't turn and I just plowed right into. Uh, what was Paul Miller racing's Porsche at that time. Uh, and I, I just was told, I don't even remember who told me, but it was like, you just got to go apologize. I was yeah, like, yeah. was That makes sense. It was my screw up. There's no doubt about it. Right. Um, and what do you have to lose? Like, yeah, okay. It's embarrassing, but the embarrassing parts already happened. Um, so I went there, apologized. And I, I think that was a big part of them being able to look at potentially hiring me. If I never went and said, said anything, they probably would have this like, bad image and they probably would never even talk about me five years later
0: yeah and i actually enjoyed that that you did that because i think so many times uh, athletes but any profession people are hesitant to take the blame so i think that was great and and like you said it probably was one of the main reasons they hired you back
1: yeah being able to take blame and just stick your hand up and say i screwed up it's kind of i respect people that can do it um and you know i I, it's hard to do like it's not something that i'm just like oh yeah i screwed up like that was me you gotta sometimes take some thoughts and you can always you, it's never it maybe it's never maybe not right to say it's never too late, but even if it takes some time, being able to admit it's a big big deal.
0: Night before an endurance race, what's the routine? What's the meal? How much sleep? Yeah.
1: So it kinda depends. Um, you know, when you think about Daytona, the twenty four hour, that's that's our Super Bowl, right? Yeah. Um so It's not when you say it's a 24 hour race, it's more like a 36 hour race, right? Because you get up, you got autograph Mm -hmm. sessions, you got driver's meetings, you got engineering meetings. So the day before there is a little bit more relaxed, not as relaxed as you would think. So a lot of times we're working through driver changes. So as you come in for fuel and tires, you've got about 15 to 17 seconds to unbuckle get out, get the next driver in, buckle five seat belts, maybe do a seat insert, do a uh, drink bottle change, um, get the car started and get ready. So you got a lot to do in a yeah, very yeah. short amount of time, right? And these things are hard to get in and out of. So we practice that. Um, you've got some engineering meetings. Um, the Most of the time though, it's like, trying to relax as much as possible. So we have motorhomes inside the track. You get that set up with your 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 everything you need for the 24-hour. You get your drinks set up. You get your food set up. You get all of your like spare Nomex fireproof clothing set up. If you've got spare, sometimes you're having to wash it throughout the night. Um, you get your schedule. Typically, the better teams will try to have a schedule for when you should expect to be in the car. As with anything, most of the time, that's completely out the window by yeah. hour two. Um, so a lot of it's just kind of preparing – Mentally, physically, being relaxed. Sometimes you'll get an IV the day before. For food, I'm pretty boring the night before. I typically like just a pasta and chicken, um, okay. something like that. It, it's oftentimes like what you can get. Sometimes it's actually hard to get the perfect meal. Again, when you start to drive for the top teams, everything's there for you. You've got masseuses, you've got IVs, you've got doctors, yeah, you've yeah. got to buy food. When you're on the worst teams, you don't have that much. <laughs> you can deal with what well, you can get, right? Well, um, let me
0: then. What's the routine? after an endurance race? What's the first meal you got to have? You've lost Across, a lot of weight and heat and you're ready to <laughs> run.
1: <laughs> Across the street from Daytona, there's a five guys. So okay. I always went there and my, my, it's funny. My wife always says like, I've got Daytona brain. Cause like after uh, the race, yeah. you're just, you're, you're, you're done. Right. Yeah. Um, so we always went there. We got two, we got two of the, the uh, hamburgers, we got a hot dog and it's, you're, you're just done. Right. Um, yeah. so that was usually our go-to go to five guys and I'm usually like a full week trying to recover you're back into the gym you're trying to do something but for the most part you're useless
0: (laughs) in most careers most careers if you make a mistake it's no big deal you start over but in your career if you make a mistake you're wrecking a car it's it's thousands of dollars and your health is at risk and your safety is at risk and you can affect other people's health and safety how do you mentally prepare after a wreck
1: yeah i mean that's a great question right um honestly, it's being able to compartmentalize. Okay. Um, so the way that like we, I do some coaching, right? And so I help other drivers get through this is I think step one is really being able to analyze what happened, understand what you did wrong. I think that's step one. But once you understand what you did wrong and what you sh- can change, then it's about bringing that focus back to being in the moment on the task at hand to the exclusion of everything else. That's way easier said than done. Um, so what we focus a little bit on sports psychology. And I think a lot of that is being able to focus down purely on your breath. When you focus on your breath, you're able to bring, you know, internalize your focus, bring it in on yourself. And that becomes a really important part of it. So I think it's a little bit different for every driver. It's a little bit different on like, is it your first crash or like your 30th crash, right? You get a little (laughs) better with practice um, and how bad the crash was.
0: Yeah. Well, I was going to say, if you haven't been coaching, that sounds like a coach response, but you are a coach and you're part of uh, Racers 360. So what is Racers 360?
1: Yeah. So uh, as my professional career started to go down or or wind down, um, (laughs) I spent a lot of time coaching. A lot of professional drivers on the weekends or when they're off will go to the track and coach someone. And we we saw some fundamental issues with coaching initially just in motorsports where most people couldn't afford to learn from world-class coaches. And that makes a big difference. Like there's, it's there's coaches, sport. yeah, yeah it's expensive sport. But as I started to, you know, and I, my career, I was lucky enough to go to a lot of, you know, great training facilities in the off season that train you know, German national soccer team, NFL players, MLB players, all of that. And that same issue was across all sports. So what our question was, was like, how do we enable those world-class coaches to scale themselves, to work with more people and, how do we bring the costs down? So mm-hmm. what we've done at Racers360 is we essentially took how top, top, top level coaching works, which is mostly video based. Like if you look at an NFL team, right? They, they have film yeah. reviews, yeah. MLB teams do the same. So the way we do it is we allow a user to upload video. And this is motorsports only for right now, but we're actually about to expand uh, outside of motorsports as well. So a driver can upload their video and then asynchronously remotely, I'm able to go through their video and film a bite-sized coaching session using like annotation tools, I've got a web camera, so it's like a five to 10 minute personalized coaching session. But now it's a lot more affordable to work with me. I'm still as a coach making my same hourly rate, but I'm working from home and I'm not having to travel 35 weekends a year. So it's sort of like how do we help coaches generate more revenue, work with people that they have to outprice themselves to, but do it in a way that they can maybe not have to travel so much.
0: Yeah, and how? what's the website for that?
1: It's racers360.com. So we have personalized coaching. We have a really cool, for any potential race car drivers out there, um, service called Racers Lounge. And this is also for motorcycle riders and go-carters. We've got a ton of amazing content. You can view and share coaching sessions. And we're actually about to introduce a whole sports psychology part of our uh, whole app. Um, so we brought in some world class experts. They've recorded audio courses. I'm recording an audio course. Our other coaches are as well. And we'll build more onto that uh, coming soon. So we have a lot of cool features in there for uh, athletes of all levels. And a lot oh. of our athletes are just enthusiasts. They just want to get better. It's not it's not really the how do you become a professional? It's how do I get coaching just improved to get more enjoyment out of my sport?
0: Yeah, and that's such a wonderful answer, especially because, like you said, coaching is hard to get sometimes, and yeah. and who knows? There could be someone out there who just needed that extra push, and who knows where it will take them, and I think that's wonderful what you have going. Yeah. Now, both of your parents are from South Africa, and, and one of your talks, I, I heard you mention that you were in a location that you said, oh, it didn't have any of the crazy animals, just things like giraffes, and I was <laughs> fell out of my chair because I was like, just giraffes? Who says that? just giraffes? And it's like oh. I I know just giraffes, the same guy who just drives Porsches. But uh, <laughs> tell me about that. Uh, tell me about that. Uh, what are some of your fondest memories of being in South Africa?
1: Yeah, I mean, so for me, it's 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 also a bit like home. Like I was born in the United States and it's kind of I'm a dual citizen. And, and for me, South Africa feels just as much as home as the U.S. And My parents actually now live back in South Africa. Um, it's a special place like there. You feel so connected with nature um the people are amazing people there uh the creativity that's there the the passion that's there it's awesome and i'm a very much a big nature person like I, yeah. I absolutely love it so there you've got kind of multiple style parks um so you've got like a, a kruger national park which is mm. where you go on game drives and you see all the yeah. animals we also have parks where you can actually buy a house and it's almost like a really large farm Farm I use very loosely. Imagine like a fence that's it's wild, it's completely wild. But you have multiple homes there, so you can own a home in the wild with wild animals. But it's done to where they try to not have like leopards and lions, things that typically eat you, right? Not predators. (laughs) So then you know they still have this. Obviously, there's still danger. You got to be heads up. But you can go on bike rides, you can go on runs, you can walk and. You could be on foot and see these, you know, be part of it. And that's like, that's, I don't know. I just, I love that place. Um, It's called Inyati is where my parents have okay. a, a little location, but there's a lot of those all across South Africa. It's tie into nature there. It's hard to beat.
0: A lot of our guests drop book recommendations before they go. Do you have a book recommendation for us?
1: So it's become a little bit more popular now that the movie came out. But if you haven't read uh, Racing in the Rain, that is one of my all time favorites. And I, I got to preface that just because the title says racing in the rain doesn't mean it has that much to do with racing. It's a story about a family from the dog's perspective. Uh, Actually. So Patrick Dempsey used to race with us. He bought the rights to the book and made a movie. It's a great movie. It's a great book. Uh, If you just want to like a feel good, you're going to cry a little bit. Uh, It's got some racing in it, which I always love. So that's a great one. On the other end, I actually really like sapiens. That was a really good book as well. Um, Full history. So those are probably my two.
0: Well, (laughs) I'll get you out of here on this last question. Always curious, someone who loves cars, who spent his time in these, these world-class cars. Do you care about your ride personally now that you are doing last year's, your day-to-day ride? Do you care about that? And if so, what's the ride?
1: So I do care about it. I'm not in a position to get what I want to get. Um, okay. So I originally had a, a VW GTI. Love that car. Like, I'm a huge fan of that car. When my parents moved out to South Africa, they uh, gave us their Q5 because they had nothing to do with it and at the time we had two cars when we moved across the country the the GTI had to get the boot because the Q5 had a little bit more space so my wife was like why don't you go sell that car you don't need it anymore <laughs> so now we we've got the Q5 it's cool it's great but like it's not it's not a, a car right yeah, yeah, yeah. um so i definitely care about it Uh, i'd love to have like for me the all-time favorite you can't even get in the states yet is the audi rs6 savant i love station wagons especially a a sports style station wagons okay okay. gti uh so i definitely care about it i probably am a little bit less nutty about it than a lot of other drivers like yeah i'm passionate about it i think it's cool i have fun in it but i don't like go on looking at car sites that much and yeah all that
0: Wasn't Dion fantastic? Man, he was one of the most energetic I guess we have, and I felt his answers were, were top-notch. He's, been, he's definitely been doing interviews for a long time. Next up, we have Michelle Westby, a drift and stunt driver who was featured in the Fast and the Furious Touring Show. Uh, she is a pioneer in the sport, and, and she loves being in control behind the wheel. She was an incredible interview, and I learned a ton. So let's go ahead and bring on Michelle. You know, that's actually what I've noticed in a constant theme with a lot of the guests is that they started off on a hobby that just interests them, and they didn't have any big aspirations. And it was maybe the fact that they were doing it purely out of love, purely out of interest that enabled the success because you know maybe if you're out to make it a career, it could be a little more frustrating and daunting. But you're, you're one of another guests that has said, I initially just started this this hobby, and it turned into a career. With that, stunt driving is not something you can practice on the motorway.
2: No, definitely not. <laughs>
0: and I wouldn't advise well, it. <laughs> let, me re- let me rephrase that. Not something you can legally practice on the waterway. Yes. Where, where and how did you first start learning the actual stunt aspect in the drifting?
2: Um, so I started off the first good six years actually only doing drifting. Um, and that I was self-taught at what you call Drift What You Brung Day. So basically up and down the UK, there's about three or four venues where it's just large tarmac areas. And a bit like a track day, you just basically mm-hmm. pay for a ticket, turn up, and they have what you call play pens. Um, so they'll set out mini tracks. Did, did and you say play pens? Basic- yeah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just like a normal play pen with uh, some cones in. <laughs> yeah. um, and literally, they've just got loads of open areas and you kind of queue up and take turns on just having a little go yourself and practice um, the basic skills that you have. And from there, really, there's racetracks up and down the UK. So I'd say once you've learnt these basic skill sets at these big open tarmac areas where not a lot can go wrong, thankfully, um, as soon as you've got the confidence that you actually can maintain um, a car drifting sideways with control, it's then good to go to racetracks where it's, again, just like a normal track day, you pay for a ticket to turn up and um, you have different levels of expertise usually, so they break you up into different groups try and keep you apart but um gives you a chance to actually go and see how you can actually maintain a drift on a track then as well which is obviously a lot faster than if you were learning on a small concrete area but yeah it's definitely not something i'd advise trying on the road because with drifting you learn more from your mistakes than anything else
0: <laughs> oh and that's that's a great point you learn more from the mistakes of what you what you can and can't do probably as well you were part of the traveling fast and the furious live show what were some of your favorite memories from that experience
2: uh, it's, uh, you know, even now it was literally like a dream come true. Never in a million years did I think I could achieve a job like that. It literally was a dream job. And, um, to say what part was my favorite is actually difficult because I'd say there wasn't a part I didn't like about it. (laughs) Um, Obviously I got to travel, which was great. Um, although that said, I I guess that's the only thing people don't think of is despite looking like you're traveling around the world, which, um, it's obviously amazing to see different cultures and experience different venues and meet different people. You don't see much of the country itself. Um, because as you imagine, it's a lot of airports, hotels and venues. So it is work. So you don't get to see too much of the cities themselves, but, um, My favourite part is probably the crowds, to be honest. Um, So like I said earlier, I I really enjoy interacting with people. So to be able to put on a show stroke performance in front of a large audience and in between shows, I would look through the curtains to just see, you know, everyone's faces smiling, enjoying the show. And after we would all walk out and get the biggest round of applause. And that to me was an amazing feeling that you, you just can't beat. And then after as well, we um, usually had meet and greets with some of the um, people that are in the audience as well. And it's a chance for them to get to know you, ask you questions and stuff. And that part of things I really love because it's meeting people from all over the world, different backgrounds. And uh, that's kind of yeah the main reason why I loved doing the meet and greets after as well.
0: Many people know the Fast and the Furious movies. There's been many of them and there will probably be many more when you were performing. What type of tricks and, and stunts did the crowd love the most? Because I I feel that with so many movies over time that the bar is being raised for what is uh, a car stunt and I think you know people are are used to seeing these amazing things in the movies. So what was it that that got the loudest applause?
2: Um I think actually when it looked like things went wrong. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> believe it or not, I think um some of the drift scenes, a lot of people have seen drifting, so it might not have looked that spectacular, but um, little did people know is actually the precision driving that was needed from us was insane I mean we were millimeters away from walls other objects other people all The time a lot of the times we were driving blind because of certain routines um, I mean there was no room for error so someone that done stunt driving would probably look at it or actually understands any sort of driving and would look at it and realize how difficult the maneuvers were so it probably had them on the edge of the seat the whole time whereas I'd say for like the smaller kids and stuff they love the parts where say one of my stunt scenes was um, where Letty crashes into the lorry in the the first Fast and Furious, and I had to recreate that. So um, the lorry was basically jackknife in the middle of arena, and I had to drive under the lorry, which um, literally the car only just fitted through. (laughs) At the same time, they have an explosion under the lorry, and I had a button on the car, which I pressed at the same time. And so I come flying out under the lorry with what looked like a crushed car, So um, kind of the mix between special effects and, you know, a bit of a dangerous manoeuvre, the kids seem to love that the most because it literally looked like I'd just been crushed by a big lorry in front of them. And, you know, the explosions and stuff is just spectacular, especially for the youngsters. And so I think that's one of their favourite scenes. And then we had also another scene where it's LED cars. So it's actually pitch black and all the cars were covered in LEDs. And it matched the kind of sequences and series, and I think people, or the adults tend to appreciate that more because it was just kind of spectacular to watch.
0: Yeah. Now you mentioned the meet and greets with the and meeting people of all ages. What's the most common question you get from a child?
2: Um. Usually, it's who's your favorite person in Fast and Furious, and okay. then the second is usually, have you met any of them? Oh. <laughs> so it's not usually about the driving. I think they are more interested in the cars. <laughs> Um and then the next one actually is usually um how can they get into stunt driving, which is a great question because to yeah. be able to let the younger generation know it is possible for anyone to do if you set your mind to it. Um, I love that question because I can kinda of give them a little bit of a head start on how to go about it or what I'd recommend as they get older. So I think that's probably usually my favorite question as well.
0: Well, and I think that's a great question, especially for you, because you're a pioneer <laughs> because not long ago stunt driving was exclusively male-dominated sport and probably was movies like the fast and the furious that did have strong female characters that actually helped the stunt world did you face any additional challenges or hurdles being a woman and do you feel like a pioneer in the sport
2: i would say when i first started out drifting um it was actually very intimidating and i wouldn't say necessarily anyone made me feel like that but I would turn up to um, a drift practice day and it was a quite small community back then as well. So everyone tends to know everyone, but it was 99.9% males. Um, So I'd turn up and I almost would feel like I'm being looked at and judged straight away a lot more than if I was just a general guy turning up. So I I felt a lot more pressure on my shoulders, to be honest, um, when I first started. And as I said, it's not like anyone done that intentionally, but you know when you are a female in a male dominated sport you are going to stand out unfortunately whether you like it or not um yeah. so turning up I kind of put that added pressure on myself and um I I took quite a while probably a good three months I'd say before I felt like I was being accepted as being you know serious in the sport because a lot of people speculate think oh she's just a girl that's come along for attention um it's almost like I felt like I had to warrant and prove myself in the industry Um, at first just because as I said there wasn't many females in it but as time's gone on um, it's luckily and thankfully becoming a little bit more of the norm and a lot of people know me from my driving know how serious I am about it so I'm not actually treated any different I'd say from the lads now Um, but yeah when I first initially started I would say it's really intimidating but the good thing about it is um, when I first started out I didn't really have any females that I followed or knew of that was in the motorsport industry that I felt like I could have ever gone spoken to or got advice from yeah um, and now I do feel like I'm in the position to be able to do that so I get inundated of um, girls of all ages on Facebook my Instagram asking how they can get into motorsport how did I get into it and how I've actually made them feel like that they can achieve the same dreams and um, and that's that's lovely to hear like to me that's kind of the biggest reward out of all of this is being able to push other females into the industry and help out wherever I can.
0: How did you progress and what was the motivation when early in your career maybe people said, you're a great driver for a girl, for a woman. And then how did you finally progress to you're a great driver, period. And did, was that added motivation?
2: Um, I would say yes. So um, I was obviously progressing. and um, When I started to go to the bigger, faster tracks, I actually had quite a few guys go up to me and say that you should think about competing. And um, I personally laughed it off. I thought, oh, no, I'm definitely not good enough to compete. And they're like, well, we've been watching you. We've been twinning with you, which is what you're doing when you're in competition. And they're like, you're spot on. I don't understand what, why you think you're not ready. And I guess that was just a bit of a self-doubt because deep down, I only started this initially as you know a fun hobby. Yeah. By all means, I did crave more. And the only way you can prove how good a driver you are really back then was competing as well. So, um, yeah, when I started competing and I actually was then winning battles, um, I managed to get second place podium after just uh, competing after a year, I think it was. And I think that then really started to prove that, you know, it's not even just a fact I'm a girl because nearly everyone, actually, the year I got second, I was the only female competitor. Um, So it's no longer, you know, you're good for a girl. It was against guys. So it kind of did prove a point, I should say. And the good thing is I gained a lot more respect for it. And that's where my first job came from, actually, is uh, someone had been watching me competing and putting it on social media that I got asked then to do drift demos, so um, drift displays at major car events and shows. And that was kind of the first stepping stone into using it as a career path. And then from there, obviously, I gained a lot more respect and followers and recognition. That then I got asked to audition for Fast and Furious Live. So it's all a stepping stone, really, but through progression. and. Just trying hard working hard and connecting with the right people.
0: Oh, that's brilliant. And I think it's a continual journey. They're gonna have more successes with that. And whether it be four wheels or even two, you love speed. What yeah. is it about <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, to say it bluntly, right? Just simply you love speed. <laughs> what is it about moving fast that excites you?
2: Um a mixture of things. Um, I shouldn't say this really, I feel like, but I like the danger of it. I like the fact that, you know, whilst you are doing these sort of activities, you are at risk. And I, I like that adrenaline rush that I kind of live in life on the edge. I've always been a bit of an adrenaline junkie, to be honest. So I think it's a little bit of a fear factor just makes you feel alive. And yeah. it just gives you that buzz that not a lot of other things can do for you, to be honest. And uh, also, it's a bit of freedom i think like for a moment if you're um even just driving normally on the motorway or something i think when you're in your own space your own car and you're going at sort of an, a nice consistent speed it gives you that feel of freedom so it's funny that you say about two wheels um because i've only ever really done four wheel stuff but i am looking at doing my motorbike license just to you know have that extra buzz and extra drilling in as well because i see the speed because they're so light is uh, a lot more significant than a car so it's yeah, my next step hopefully <laughs>
0: Yeah, you know, I had another guest on who he he was attempting to climb Everest. And one of the things he said was his motivation was he just didn't want to be normal. And I think maybe that was why he pursues these adventures. And it kind of sounds like that for you that because of the danger, you know, a lot of people say it's dangerous, I don't want to do it. But you're actually that that's that added motivation that added thrill. Do you feel it's maybe part of you that just does not want to be like the average person?
2: Oh, 100%, yeah. Um, I think that's a little bit of being an only child. I didn't really have ways of connecting with other people easy, I think, when I was younger. Um, And as I've got older, having a sort of hobby or something to talk about like this, it makes everyone interested in talking to you. And I think that's an extra bonus about it as well is, yeah, I love having something different to talk about. And I love not being the stereotype.
0: Yeah.
2: I love people looking at me because potentially I've done a little bit of promotional work and stuff I think. You know, the look one look at me, think, oh, girly gal, girl, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they're so shocked when, obviously, I get to explain that. No, I do stunt drive and I do this, that, yeah. and the other. I, I guess I really enjoy that surprise look as well and catching people out and just showing don't judge a book by its cover.
0: <laughs> ah, Michelle was great. Be sure to follow Michelle and Dion on social media. They both are great follows. My new book, Curiosity, is currently available on Amazon. Curiosity celebrates the knowledge that strangers have to offer everyone has unique expertise and endless wisdom awaits the perpetually curious. Featuring 200 episodes from the Any Given Runway show, Curiosity explores the diverse lives of athletes, adventurers, and performers. From daring voyages across the Atlantic to unforgettable performances in the West End, Curiosity celebrates the sophisticated thing we call life. Everyone has a story. Each person is a scholar. Thank you for listening. Fill up that passport. I'll see you on the road. Aviento.